All right, now that we're recording, I can start over again and say hello once again to everybody. So welcome, and I'm so glad that you're here. And um, this is the first of a three-part benefit um, for Home Foundation. And in a little bit, I will um, be sharing some slides about Home Foundation and telling you about who we are. And then there will be two more presentations in this series, Alistair Gray and Kelly Callahan, um, who are the other two core teachers at the Academy of Homeopathy Education, will also be presenting um, a free session. And you know, the idea here is to just um, share our passion for homeopathy. Um, hopefully something you'll learn something new that you didn't know about before. And you'll also learn a little bit about the hard work that goes on behind the scenes at uh, Home Foundation. Now, this presentation that um, I've got for you tonight, I know we're technically supposed to spend an hour. I'm gonna really do my best. I don't think I can guarantee that. Um, so if you need to run out after an hour, okay, it's, I'm going to guess it's going to go on a little bit longer. This is, a, um, it's originally a two hour, um, lecture that, um, I've cut down, um, and I'm telling a slightly different story with it. But, you know, like anything in homeopathy, the information that we're learning is always attached to lots of different things. And so depending on where you are on your homeopathy journey, some of this might be brand new all around. Um, some of it, I think, though, is going to change some minds, even for folks who have been in the homeopathy world for a little bit. Um, so let's just get started here without further ado. Can everyone see my screen share? You all know who this guy is, right? That's our buddy, Samuel Hahnemann, who's sitting over my shoulder always. So this lecture, what would Hahnemann do? <laughs> if you've seen me speak before, you might have noticed that I start a lot of my lecture titles with what would Hahnemann do? Because if I could have one of those days where you go back and you get to talk to anyone in history, that's the person I would want to talk to. Because <clears throat> not only did he systematize homeopathy, but he managed to understand universal laws. And he was able to take the universal laws, put them in a system of medicine, that when we have fidelity to his system, has the capacity to transform energy into having more life than it had before. What? Where else do you get that? Yeah. So that's why I always start with what would Hahnemann do? Because I know maybe what I would do, but I would only do it if I felt like I was doing something that really was with fidelity to Hahnemann's system. So in this particular um, conversation we're going to have tonight, the question that we're, we're going to explore is what would Hahnemann do given the way that the science of the 19th century evolved and how much this concept of biomedicine, which we'll talk about as we get on with the presentation, how much this concept of biomedicine actually impacted the evolution of homeopathy to the point where I think it forever changed what we do. And I'm not so sure that it changed it in a way that kept us truly um, in alignment with what Hahnemann may have wanted. 
So the premise here has to do with the history of homeopathy in America, because America was meant to be the place where homeopathy was to flourish. It was the place. Um, Hahnemann called homeopathy the new medicine for the new world. And as I'm hopefully going to demonstrate for you today, that um, the story that is often told may not be completely it may not be the complete story. So the story that we often hear is that, yeah, homeop homeopathy was doing really well and we had all these schools and we had hospitals and then along came Flexner, right? We all know about the Flexner report in 1910 and then all that Rockefeller money and then there's big pharma and boy, the man just put us down. Spoiler alert, that is not what happened. And the challenges that homeopathy faced and the unfortunate um, decline that put us into the realm of quackery by the end of the 19th century and certainly throughout the 20th century and a fight that we are still grappling with today, 230 years after this modality took hold, um, has to do much more with um the evolution of science in the 20th century and the ways that homeopaths did whatever they wanted in ways that may not have had um, long-term adherence to Hahnemann's system. So um, as with any good scientific um, presentation, you give your disclaimers. So my first disclaimer is, I'm not responsible for how this may have you thinking about homeopathy by the time we finish. Yeah, um, because so much of the information that I'm going to present to you tonight actually came as a total surprise to me. And it led me to realize that the more we comprehend the intellectual origins of homeopathy, the greater the likelihood we are going to have success in practice. So um, the next thing that we do when we're having a, you know, a scientific presentation is we tell who we are, who our affiliations are, and who we collaborate with. And so these are the organizations that I am affiliated with. And you'll see at the top of the hierarchy here is Home Foundation, right? And that is the, um, that's the umbrella under which you have been invited tonight. And Home Foundation is, um, is a 501c3. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what more, what our mission is, but it informs everything that we do. And it has a, um, it has a relationship to the Academy of Homeopathy Education in that Home Foundation um, houses our clinical operations. So anything clinical that happens through the Academy of Homeopathy Education is actually a part of Home Foundation. And you may have heard of the Homeopathy Help Network, um, HHN. We're coming up on our fourth birthday. Um, HHN was founded in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we saw our first cases within days of when cases started to appear in America. And I'm 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 just gonna say I'm I'm really excited to say, I think I'm gonna say I'm bewildered to say that um we've seen almost 5,000 cases um, since our inception. Um, you'll see here we've got Home Partners. Home Partners is really the sort of separate clinical operations that go on. Um, it's a it's an evolving entity where Alistair Gray and I are working on creating um, 
uh, an additional pathway for stellar new practitioners in homeopathy to have a place where they're getting really potentized. Um, and that's something that we'll leave aside for tonight. And then here, you see this, the American Institute of Homeopathy, them's the medical homeopaths. And I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, but there's a flying pig behind me. You know that expression, when pigs fly? Well, pigs have flown because um, AHE and Home Foundation are the exclusive educational providers for the AIH, the American Institute of Homeopathy. And um, it was not something anybody was thinking about that uh, an institution led by non-medically licensed homeopaths would produce programs with enough integrity such that um, we are entrusted by the oldest medical association in the United States. So who is Home Foundation? Um, we are a really, really, really committed group um, in homeopathy. We're a 501c3, and this is our mission statement. Our mission statement says that we're committed to closing the gap between traditional and conventional medicine. In other words, we don't believe that there should be any differential between whether you're licensed, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a naturopath, whether you're a medical doctor, whether you're a professional homeopath, we believe that every single person who practices homeopathy must meet a high standard. And that was a tough one for lots of folks in the licensed world to swallow because, you know, and rightfully so, people have worked really hard for their medical licensure, but that doesn't guarantee success in homeopathy. And so we are really pushing to elevate those standards, right, by elevating the principles and practice of classical homeopathy. Classical homeopathy has become a dirty word because people say, oh, the classicals, they don't know how to do this or that or the other thing. Well, that shouldn't be the case because there's no such thing as classical homeopathy. There's homeopathy. It's a thing. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through today. So our goal is to champ champion a unified homeopathy community by bringing everybody together. There's no othering that happens at Home Foundation or AHE. No matter where you've come from in your study or practice of homeopathy, there's a place for you here. One of the things that we're most proud of is our research office. So we, are, we do four things um, at Home Foundation. The first thing is we provide access to homeopathy care. That's what you saw through with the um, HHN logo. Um, we also, because we are a part of an educational institution, um, we provide pathways for students to get experience in their clinical training. And so we see, well, we've seen 5,000 cases in our chronic, or sorry, in our acute clinical um, clinic. And we also, um, between our teaching clinic and all of the students in supervision, see between five and 600 chronic cases each year. Every one of the cases that comes through um, the Home Foundation's um, operations has a vetted outcomes-based measurement tool attached to it. So research is hugely important to us. We engage in clinical research, we engage in historical research, we engage in academic and educational research. We also curate a library. We've got, I think, 120 linear feet of antiquarian homeopathy and medical books. And then we have a huge library of homeopathy materials and medical materials. And then the last thing we do is we, um, we provide access to education by raising money for scholarships or however we can underwriting education um, with AHE um, by figuring out how we can deliver education to as many people as possible. And that is, we just don't want finances to be a barrier to really good quality education. 
So we've got this research office. We've got this team of people. This is the core team um, of folks who are in our research office. And I think I saw Christine on the call here. Um, but it's a it's a small and mighty team that is growing. We've got more and more research fellows who are coming onto our team. Um, some of the folks come with skills in research, like Christine. Her PhD is absolutely invaluable to us. So she's a homeopathy student, and she also is a researcher who's really helping us. And Dr. Marguerite Schreier is a is a homeopath and also a very high-level methodologist in the research world who is also helping us to get our research off the ground. What does that mean? It means things like we got to win an award. Um, and so this is our first commercial um, of the talk, and that's Alistair and I. Um, at the Geary Conference. So there was a conference with um, Geary, which is an international research foundation, the AIH and the Faculty of Homeopathy, which is the medical uh, homeopaths from the UK. And we took home the award for best human clinical abstract and video presentation. Why am I sharing this? For bragging rights? Absolutely. We were the only non-licensed medical folks at that conference. So, yep, gonna brag on it. But also because um, I just think it represents the quality that we bring to the work we do. Uh, and you can be a part of that as well. And so what we are developing at Home Foundation are ways for the entire homeopathy community to participate in research. And there are two things that we will be talking more about with um, Alistair's presentation. But one of them that you need to know about is the Practitioner Generated Research Network. The PGRN is a way for all homeopaths, regardless of how you do your homeopathy, to conduct outcomes-based research. It's really easy. Alistair will tell you it takes 22 seconds. I think he's lying. It takes me at least it takes me like a minute. So we've agreed that it's about 45 seconds to do an outcomes uh, measurement with every case that you do. Um, we also have developed a universal health inventory form. What this means is that we can top and tail everybody's case. Universal health inventory form means you as a practitioner don't have to do a thing. We can help you to, um, uh, to get that form out to your clients and it comes back to us double de-identified in accordance with human subject research. And we can then collect that data. And then at the end, we see what the outcomes are. And that is a project that we are just absolutely thrilled with. And we're, we are so close to having a big launch with education for how everybody can do it. Okay, so let's get started, though, because we've got a job to do tonight. We need to talk about how history impacts contemporary practice. So how is it that homeopathy, the second most widely used medicine in the world today, and if you need a statistic, Somebody says, homeopathy, what is that? It's the second most widely used medicine in the world today. How do you not know that, right? That's like a big statement to make, and it's true. So we are the second most widely used medicine in the world today with more than 230 years of clinical experience and evidence. But guess what? We have yet to agree on a set of guidelines on what we do and how we do it. How is this possible, right? I think it's because we don't fully understand the ways in which Hahnemann came to develop this amazing system of medicine and its therapeutic interventions. And I believe that by having a better understanding of what homeopathy is and what it isn't, we can do much, much better work. Okay. As I said before, America, the new world, was indeed the place where homeopathy was to fully flourish, the new medicine for the new world. And it seemed like that was going to be the case. We were fully on the trajectory 
for that to be the case. But by the late 19th century, we kind of lost the plot. And all of these tangential expressions of homeopathy ultimately diluted the profession to the point where it lay dormant for almost 100 years. And we all know what happens when you have dilution without succussion, right? So my job today is to add some succussion to the history by taking you through some previously unexplored primary source materials and to introduce you to some new information that might help point us in a direction that brings a little bit more clarity to the history so that we can create a more cohesive and powerful future. So as Hahnemann says, not says, mandates in the second edition of the Organon, Aude Sapere, dare to know, dare to be wise. Yeah, you ready? You dare? Of course you dare. Let's do it. All right, so I have to show you this because I spent four years um, at Johns Hopkins. And even though I felt like I had major imposter syndrome as the only non-doctor in my cohort. When I saw that on my ID, they misspelled graduate student, it didn't make me worry anymore. I was like, you know what? If you can call me a graduate student, I can do this. So, you know, we take the little wins in life. Um, but for me, I felt like I, I really needed to do something. I needed to understand what, what was missing in the history of medicine, so that such that homeopathy was misrepresented, but also that would help me to understand how we do what we do today and why it just doesn't make sense that there are so many different ways that people practice homeopathy. So I came at it with a really simple research question. What the hell is homeopathy? <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of the question that I'm asking. And it, I mean, it's actually more nuanced, which is how in one lifetime did one man create a complete system of medicine and a unique pharmaceutical preparation? Where did these ideas come from? And the more I studied and learned about how much historical misinformation there is about homeopathy, both in the mainstream, but also in the modality itself, the more I realized that there was a lot of work to be done. And if I was going to try to tackle that problem, I had to learn to work within the system and I needed a little bit more research cred. Um, and so that's what got me luckily into a program that I wound up absolutely loving. Um, and this feels important as the demand for homeopathy increases exponentially and as the medical system is struggling. You know, there are sick and suffering people who aren't finding what they need in order to get relief, and they are seeking alternatives. And unfortunately, and I really hate to say this, some of them are not getting better from homeopathy. And indeed, the misappropriation of homeopathy leaves people sometimes a little bit flat. And so we need to figure out how to change that, how to change that paradigm. So on my way to helping to do that, I spent four years in the history of medicine program at Hopkins. It was three years of intensive study and a year of research and writing my thesis. It's been, it was a ride, let me tell you. Um, but I got my thesis over the line. So my dissertation was accepted into the Muggle academia realm. And I had one goal, which was to have the word homeopathy in my dissertation title. <laughs> And it got edited a few times and I just put it back in. I think eventually they they gave up. Um, 
but I learned so much along the way. And my thesis, which has been um, published as a book, it explores the stated historiography. In other words, how the history books um, document ortho orthodox science and medicine <clears throat> from 1833 until about 1888. And that time period really reflects Constantine Herring, often called the other father of homeopathy. Um, it, it reflects the time when he arrived in America, 1833, until 1888, when his friend and then frenemy, Adolphus Lippi, died. Those two historical giants are characters through which we can explore the scientific legit legitimacy of homeopathy, albeit a convoluted history. So, in order to get this thesis over the line, I had to do a deep dive into the history of medicine as it exists. And I was required to introduce an expanded position. In other words, I had to come up with something that had not been documented before in the history of medicine. And then it required primary source research in order to prove and defend its validity. And I'll talk more about that process a little bit in a bit. Now, we all want Hahnemann's accomplishments and contributions to medicine to be honored. There's no doubt about that. And I realized as I was learning about the history of medicine that homeopathy is either excluded or misrepresented. And this misrepresentation of homeopathy is actually more problematic because it mostly presents homeopaths as charlatans or quacks, but also because this misappropriated history has wrongly influenced the practice of contemporary homeopathy. And I think that's something that we all need to understand because many of us have been taught a history of homeopathy, like I had mentioned before about Flexner and you know Big Pharma being what took us down. Well, without having that real information, we run the risk of perpetuating the same problem again. So with that in mind, the third thing that I had really wanted to accomplish, or I still want to accomplish, is that if we can all agree on what happened, yeah, then maybe the profession can come together. And if we can agree that misunderstandings about history are what put us into perhaps practice that isn't in alignment with best practices in the way that homeopathy is meant to be, then we can forgive ourselves and each other for perhaps, you know, doing something that wasn't in alignment with what homeopathy, you know, was really meant to be. Okay, so <laughs> a little bit about me. So I didn't really introduce myself in the beginning. I introduced all the organizations that I work for. So I've been a homeopath for, for a bit. Um, and I can't remember, I think in cutting down my um, slides, I took out the slide that talks about the amount of time I've been in the homeopathy world, but I've taught the entire foundation's program of homeopathy through, I think 26 times. And when you go through and you do something over and over and over again, you, you start to see holes in things. Yeah. Um, and then you also are teaching smart people who ask you questions that you don't know the answer to, and then you have to figure it out. And so being a teacher, um, being a guide, being a partner in learning means that you are constantly 
investigating these materials and asking more questions about what we do, right? And so I have taught over the years at tons of schools in the US and around the world. And one of the things that I learned was that there is a lot of inconsistency about what we do. And sometimes some of it isn't even recognizable as homeopathy. And it occurred to me that perhaps one of the reasons that our profession struggles to have a cohesive identity after 230 years, remember, like we are considered an emerging profession. After 230 years, like, come on, right? So why is this? So one of the reasons I think about is maybe we just really don't understand what we do and why we do it. And I think there's a there's a reason for this. And it's, and it's kind of an innocent reason. And that is that there have been so many amazing teachers in homeopathy, right? Think about all of the folks that come to homeopathy. We are definitely a unique bunch, right? So you get these incredible thinkers, you get these amazing teachers and passionate practitioners, and each of them brings their own special sauce to the game. And what has happened is it's like you've got this wheel with 50 spokes coming off of the central hub, each spoke going in the direction of some teacher who has brought their own spin on things. This is why I think people say, if you put 50 homeopaths in a room, you're going to get 50 different remedy recommendations, right? So with all of these great, if not divergent thinkers, they, they can't all be wrong, but they also can't all be right <laughs> because homeopathy, it's a thing. It's an actual system of medicine and it's based on universal laws. It's got a philosophy, it's got a unique set of medicines that are intrinsically designed to work together. In other words, homeopathic remedies are meant to work according to the philosophy, philosophy from which they were developed. Those two things go hand in hand. So Hahnemann discovered this unique uh, pharmaceutical, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to say this without bringing all of the alchemy baggage into it, because <laughs> some of you may not have seen the companion lecture that goes to this, but basically Hahnemann discovered with his unique pharmaceutical preparation and method, a way to bring life into an organism that's ultimately losing life. Okay. That is the elixir of life. That is Hahnemann cracked the code. Let's just leave it at that. He did the thing that scientists, medical doctors for centuries, for millennia were attempting to do. Okay, so the discovery of how to make these medicines goes hand in hand with the philosophy that they are designed to be used with, okay? So here we are two centuries down the pike and the roadmap that Hahnemann had given us for using these medicines has gotten convoluted and I might argue in some ways has led us far afield from what Hahnemann was getting us to do. So from a practical standpoint, you can imagine how this has happened because the lineage of homeopathy contains this mashup of all types of people. You've got, you know, the, the small totality medical prescribers, the large totality, you know, sort of spiritual thinkers, all happening alongside of those who are adherents to Hahnemann. And so my goal has always been to try and figure out, you know, sort of where did we go wrong and how can we understand based on these historical materials, how we can write the ship. So that's what I was working to do. 
And I, you know, in terms of sources and methods, um, you know, one of the things when you are in the world of historians, sources and methods are the biggest thing that you've got to prove in anything that you are writing about. And so I thought it would be important to share with you some of the ways that I went about this. So, of course, I was required to, you know, find primary source materials to back up my argument. And I was very lucky because the time period that I was studying for my dissertation, the archives at Drexel University, which is three miles from where I live, house the largest archives on Constantine Herring. So I had all of that at my disposal. Also, as I mentioned, the home library. Um, within those antiquarian books that we have, we have multiple editions of the same book. So for example, we've got, you know, I don't know how many organons, each of which has its own, uh, depending on the edition, might have a different preface, might have different authors' annotations, it might have different um, uh, prefatory notes. And so what I did was I scoured all of the all of the author's information, all of the prefaces, the translator's notes and so forth of many of the books that informed the decisions of the practitioners in that time period. I also spent so much time reading the journals and conference proceedings, which if you ever have a year that you want to do something really fun, I'm telling you, it was it was an unbelievable experience. And one of my favorite things was um, there is the Lippy Society, which um, will come up a little bit later in this talk, but I have all of their meeting minutes which include what they ate, and they ate a lot of ice cream. They had ice cream for dessert after almost every meeting. It's pretty amazing. So, you know, when you get into primary source materials, not only are you, you know, slogging through all of the old handwriting and everything, but you're also, um, you're also getting a window into these people's lives and their relationships. And that tells a very different story. So along the way, I also incorporated a lot of the alchemical research that I had gathered that informed Hahnemann's establishment of his systems. That's been my own personal course of research for the last 20 years that really did allow me to ask a different set of questions that had been previously asked. And a part of that study that I had done includes, because alchemy is not just turning lead into gold. And it's not the, just the spiritual transmutation of one soul, but it's actually the middle path is medical alchemy, which includes the evolution of chemistry and pharmacy. Anyway, what I did was I compared my findings to the existing secondary source materials that have informed what we talk about, not to mention what we teach and practice. And I found a lot of challenges in that material. I mean, if any of you have ever tried to read Harris Coulter's gigantic four volume set, Divided Legacy, it's like this tall. You could die before you finish that, right? Um, and there is a woman named Naomi Rogers, who's a professor at Yale, she's a historian. She wrote a book about the history of Hahnemann Hospital and 19th century homeopathy, which was balanced from a historical point of view, but it was totally missing all the nuances necessary to parse out how homeopaths actually practice. So what I realized was that when history is written by people who don't understand the subject matter intimately, and I don't say that disparagingly in any way, but 
you can't just be a historian trying to understand homeopathy. I mean, it's hard enough to be a homeopath and understand homeopathy. And so there were a lot of sort of missteps and misunderstandings that this that just then get propagated down the road. Okay, so we're going to take all that background and we've got a plan for tonight. And that plan is that we're going to look at homeopathy in light of the trajectory of 19th century medicine. We're going to consider the challenges that happened because along that trajectory of 19th century medicine, everything changed because something called biomedicine evolved or bioreductionistic medicine, yeah? Isolation of germs. And then the third thing, if I do my job well, hopefully we'll accept the truth about why homeopathy lost its foothold in the 19th century. And maybe that will help us to not repeat our past. So whenever I am working on anything, as I already told you, I'm asking this guy. Yeah, so Hahnemann. Um, I'm sure most of you know quite a bit about Hahnemann already, but remember who the time period that he lived in. He was born in 1755 and he lived until 1843. He was a medical doctor. He was a chemist. He was one of the most advanced chemists of his day. And he was a polymath. Um, he was proficient in 12 to 15 languages, depending on who you ask and what level of proficiency they are considering. And, you know, he systematized an entire system of medicine in one lifetime. So this, you know, when he, when you think about somebody who's got that kind of cred, when he says, follow me, but follow me well, I think we should listen, right? Many of you have heard me say before, when, you know, Hahnemann talks about in the sixth edition of, Organa, of the Organon with the LM potency, how he was able to extract spirit from matter. So my litmus test is, if you're going to change anything about what Hahnemann says, you need to be able to extract spirit from matter without a handbook. And you need to be able to tell people how to do it. If you can't do that, listen to the guy who could. Seems pretty simple. Hey, Siri, what time is it? <laughs> uh, I don't know who it was, but it's 737 Eastern time. <laughs> anyway, so Hahnemann's theory is based on natural and universal laws that he extrapolated into medicine. This is really, really key. And it, I think actually, if you take one point away from this talk tonight, it's that homeopathy is based on universal laws. Science changes over time, right? Science is the law in the moment somebody says it is, right? Science, follow the science until they go, oh wait, We've got more information now. Follow the science. Oh, sorry, we got that wrong. That's fair because really science is about change over time. Yeah, except in the moment where you have to follow the science and it's only one way. So Hahnemann, his entire system is based on the universal laws. And there are two basic tenets that underscore it. Number one is that it's not homeopathy without similars. And number two is that we understand the remedies through provings. Now, there are some other parts of it, but germane to what we're talking about tonight, those two points are important. And they become even more important when we start to look at how homeopaths treated homeopathy as we go through the 19th century. Yeah? All right. So first thing we have to do is just do a little bit of history, a little evolutionary overview of the 19th century. And then we're going to talk about Constantine Herring. So here's a trajectory of Hahnemann's history. Now, some of you probably have seen, I've done hours on this. So I've shortened it to just one slide. 
And there are a couple things that I want you to pay attention to here. The first is that look at the time frame of homeopathy, right? Hahnemann's life was really, his work life was centered right in this time when all the action was happening in medicine. So the first organon is published in 1810 and Hahnemann lives until 1843, okay? However, the sixth and final edition of the organon was not published until 1921, okay? So those homeopaths from the fifth edition onward, 1833 onward, they're missing a lot of that latter information. So we've got to cut them some slack in some of the aspects that they just didn't know, including some of the refutes that Hahnemann made to some of the practices of his time. Yeah, okay. Now, what's happening in the regular medical world? the non-homeopathy world. Well, interestingly, the beginning of the 19th century, there was this quest for a unifying medical system that would be the same way that they were looking for the universal laws like Newton had presented with the law of gravity, right? So what's really interesting is that's what homeopathy is. That's what Hahnemann brought. This is why in the early part of the 19th century, everybody was so excited because this is what they were looking for. And he had the goods and he delivered, right? Makes total sense. But then what happens is that by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, it all changed, right? So the beginning of the century, it's everything that Hahnemann has everything that they were looking for, he's got it. And then things start to shift. So we have this, this thing that I call the gateway to biomedical modernity or the problem with progress. Because what happened in medicine is that it becomes institutionalized. It becomes um, married to technology. And then we make these discoveries like anesthesia that happens at the same time we're bringing medicine into a hospital setting. And the biggest problem is we start isolating germs. We develop what they call the microscopic basis for disease. Okay. So this is a big deal, right? So homeopathy arrives on the scene with everything that they were searching for, everything medicine was looking for. And then the capacity to isolate causative agents changes. Yeah. So all of a sudden you start getting things like biochemistry, bacteriology, pathology, all of this becomes this real complexity in the realm of homeopathy. Rational systems of medicine move into empiricism until they ultimately land in reductionism. Okay. Everything has to be confirmed with a numeric value. Everything becomes laboratory confirmed. We move from what is natural to what is normal. Yeah. So this idea that you can isolate a causative agent or product of disease, okay, changes everything. But you know who started it? Because remember, those guys like Coke and Pasteur, they don't happen until the end of the century. It started with Constantine Herring. This is one of those mic drop moments like, what? He's supposed to be our friend. How did he cause all these problems? I love him. Look, he's adorable. Wait till we get to the other you know, pictures of him where he looks like a Brooklyn kombucha maker, right? But Constantine Herring introduced some problems because he 
as I call him now, was a very complicated character. So let's just start in case you don't know much about Herring. Look, I wasn't kidding. Look how cute he is, right? He could totally be a 21st century character. So you might know the story. He was a medical doctor. He was training at the University of Leipzig. It's 1824 and he's doing a dissection and he cuts his finger. And so he's doing a dissection of a suicide victim and he gets a wound that he gets gangrene and nothing of the usual medicine is helping. No leeches, no calomel, no hellstone, which is silver nitrate, um, was going to work. And they're telling him, Constantine, we got to cut the finger off. He says, no, 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 I want my finger. They're like, look, none of the stuff is working. And then he's got this colleague who was a fan of Hahnemann who says, I think you should try a dose of arsenic. Just a little bit. And saved his finger, okay? Hence this quote, to Hahnemann who saved my finger, I gave my whole hand and to the promulgation of his teachings, not only my hand, but the entire man, body and soul. So Herring was definitely like the evangelist for homeopathy. And he did the experiments, he proved it out. He says, you know what? This is for me. And some of you may know that that Herring was actually in the midst of writing a refute about homeopathy that was supposed to be the final nail in the homeopathy coffin when this happened. So a little divine intervention, right? Okay, so this is great. So then let's fast forward here to 1833. When Herring writes this long paper about how he had this remedy, this medicine that was made from prepared itch matter that he calls saurine, we know it as serinum. And he says, this is equal to any of our strong medicines. It's got the power to produce an eruption. And it's one of the most efficacious means for restoring the lost or weakened action to the skin. He says, it's the most important remedy in every form of scabies. What? What say you? He says, that is a prophylactic against infection with itch. Oh, Constantine, we had such high hopes for you. So you can see here why he's, he's a complicated character. And actually, I owe him a bit because if it wasn't for his discoveries, this is what got my thesis over the line, to be honest, is that I was able to prove that homeopaths made discoveries of using isolated disease matter in medicine 50 years before the allopaths did. That was the way that this happened, okay? And it was Constantine Herring. But look at this. If you're a homeopath, you recognize what he's, what he's doing here. This is not homeopathy, right? It's isopathy. Isopathy, if you don't know, is using same to cure same. Homeopathy is similars, okay? This is not similars. Now, to be sure, there is a long history of isopathy going way back, okay? And I'm not gonna include all the ways that this has to do with Paracelsus and the alchemical problem here, because this is a shortened um, conversation, but suffice it to say that Herring is working with isopathy. Now, before you get your panties in a bunch, it's not a bad thing, it's just a different thing. 
Okay. So if you remember in the very beginning, what I said was, look, Hahnemann, we got to give him his props. He was able to do this system of medicine. This is not it. Okay. So this is, this is an issue though with Herring because he's got a lot of power in American homeopathy. Yeah. And I think he may have taken his eyes off the prize. And so did Hahnemann. Okay. So Hahnemann refutes this directly in aphorism 56's footnote that didn't come out until the sixth edition of the Organon in 1921. Herring's dead. Hahnemann's dead. As far as I can tell, they did not have a conversation about this, or at least I haven't found evidence of a conversation about it, but it was published after they were both dead. And Hahnemann says very directly. So in aphorism, in the footnote to 56, Hahnemann is talking about isopathy as a third application against disease. Homeopathy is one, allopathy is one, isopathy is one. So he makes a very clear distinction in the footnote to 56. And he says, look, many will have incorrectly applied the quote, benefit which humanity received through cowpox inoculation. The prophylactic efficacy was because cowpox and smallpox are similar, not exact. So there are two things here for us to go get a little sweaty about. One is that Hahnemann appears to be okay with the idea of inoculation by a similar. And he says, isopathy is not homeopathy. And of course he directly refutes um, what Herring had done because he's, he's using the exact example here, right? To cure a human disease with an identical human disease. For example, the itch diathesis. Yeah, the itch diathesis being um, scabies. And he says, maladies arisen there from with an identical human disease, disease matter with a soricum taken from the itch diathesis is going too far. It's exactly what Herring did. He took the pus from a, a, an eruption and he says it's going to cure the same. And Hahnemann says, nothing results from it but calamity and aggravation of the disease. So I don't think that we can say that there's any gray area here, right? Herring says this, it's published in Staff's archive and Dudgeon writes about it. And Hahnemann says, no, very clearly. Now, why does this matter? Well, because this is what's happening a lot nowadays and we also have to know Hahnemann refuted isopathy, not nozodes. Okay. So if you're homeo newbie here, nozodes are remedies, medicines that are made from disease products. Hahnemann is not saying don't use nozodes. He's saying you're not going to cure a disease with a disease of the same, two human diseases. And he's he's specifying human because he had been talking about cowpox before, right? Cowpox and smallpox, two different. Um, two different entities, right? Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so the other thing just to think about here is that the substance this is a little bit of a cul-de-sac, but um, Herring, he says he got this original source material um, from full large yellow pustules on the fingers, hands, and forearms of a young, otherwise healthy person in whom these pustules had been produced by handling some stuff from Germany. Does that feel scientifically accurate, you know, like you got some problems here, not the least of which is that is not how scabies 
presents. So we've got a problem with the disease that he thinks it is. The second thing is the, the word that I have in brackets here is because he said an otherwise healthy Negro. He was in Suriname. So that otherwise healthy Negro was likely an enslaved person. Yeah. So you got a little bit of a bioethical issue happening there. You also have the fact that he was doing experiments on this same substance in 1856. How was he storing this pus? In 18, you know, from 1833 to 1856. So you've got a little bit of a question happening here about the substances. Okay. This is important because we have the same questions about the accuracy of these um, biological products that make their way into the pharmacopoeia. Yeah, which it's fine with the remedies that we've got a long history with, but the way that they're being introduced today brings up some, some issues. Okay, there's another thing that I call soric irony is because if you, if you have a photographic memory, that slide where I showed you the trajectory of homeopathy over the years, you will see, or you might remember that in 1828, Hahnemann published his, his book, The Chronic Diseases right? And in the chronic diseases, he says the underlying root of all disease is Sora. So what makes Herring name his medicine Sorine when it's coming from scabies? Yeah, he's trying to come up with a workaround. He's looking at it as potentially being a way to, um, you know, get around having to treat Sora. So I think it's just important because it, it, it may suggest a limited understanding of chronic diseases by herring. I'm not sure. Um, but it's definitely a debate that continues on to today because to truly delve into Sora, to really understand Sora, is to answer many of our current issues, for example, autoimmune disease as developed Sora. So I think it involves a lot more thought than just potentially a workaround. Now, if we're going to talk about nozodes, um, we have to introduce this guy, Samuel Swan, um, who also lived during the same time period. He was a student of Herring and Lippi, who we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but Swan is responsible for the introduction of many of the nozodes that are in circulation today. He introduced morbillinum, the measles nozode, cephalinum, metarinum, and, and more, right? But he says, you know what? I don't urge the proving of these. Yeah. So he says, oh, because, you know, these powerful agents must be proved by those willing to sacrifice health and comfort. Okay. So that's fine. He's just looking out for us, right? Because nobody wants to be on a bad proving trip. But then he follows it up with this, where he says, actually, you don't really need to do the provings because what you get are all get it from all the it, all the information um, that we have about the symptoms that healthy humans have put out after they have contracted a disease. The problem is that that is not approving. Aphorism 20, right? When we talk about approving, we are taking a potentized substance and we are looking for more than the collected data from a public health official. We wanna know those very unique symptoms that come out, right? The aphorism 153, the strange, rare, and peculiar symptoms. Those are, those are the gems, that's the gold that helps us to solve so many of the cases. And so we've got a problem because the, the, the pushing forward of 
adding nozodes into the pharmacopoeia was mostly driven by a person who didn't believe that you really needed to prove them and gathered a lot of this information from, from clinical uh, data. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more of that about him in a minute, but because this is a free benefit, we got to have a commercial. Now, you could get yourself all worked up about, oh my gosh, there are all these, you know, things that are happening in homeopathy and how do I even trust what's going on? Well, you can trust it because the folks that are on the HHN helpline are well-trained homeopaths. And if they are student homeopaths, they are very closely supervised to make sure that they are providing the best care possible. And every case that comes through HHN is also a part of the research initiative that we talked about. So um, we one of the things that we really need everyone's support on is please send folks to HHN. Um, if you're a homeopath and you can't handle your acutes, send them to us. We'll send them back to you fixed up and ready for more chronic care. Um, this is really we one of the ways that we can run this telehealth service, the only way that we can have this internship and externship possible for students and practitioners of homeopathy is if we have enough sick people all the time. We can't just we can't just manifest five sick people on a day that there's a clinic. So we have to have cases all the time and the volunteers who are working to keep this telehealth service afloat. So send everybody homeopathyhelpnow.com. And also just a quick introduction of a new program that we are launching. Um, the course is in May, am I right? It's gonna be launching in May. Um, and this is Comfort Care. And HHN Comfort Care is the first of its kind telehealth service to support um, folks who are folks and their caregivers and family members at the um, end of life. And so we have been doing a lot of research. Um, we are developing an amazing program that includes just groundbreaking ways to get homeopathy into standard of care, working with the hospice and death doula movement. We're creating, uh, we're creating things like um, advanced directives for um, homeopathy care in people's end of life plan. So this has been this has been a project. Gosh, I've been working on it for it's going on three years now, um, and it came about because um, some folks associated with Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop brand. Um, one of Gwyneth Paltrow's um, closest friends passed a few years ago, and she used homeopathy and um, some um, adjunct therapies, integrative medicine, and and really alternative things in her care. And her children started a foundation um, in her name, and um, they asked that homeopathy be a part of it, and we were asked to create this. And this has become just, I, I, I actually don't even have the words for it because the just the infrastructure around it is pretty profound. Um, and so any donations that are made to Home Foundation are supporting initiatives like this that are not just helping individuals, but are actually helping to develop programs to bring homeopathy back to its rightful place in medicine. All right, so end of the commercial break, let's get back into it. And I told you there was no way I could do this in an hour. I knew that, you knew that, we all knew that. All right. Um, 
So the next thing we're going to talk about is this thing that I call the biomedical zeitgeist. You know, that idea, a zeitgeist is like the spirit of the times. It's when something is so enculturated that you don't even have to talk about it. It's just there, right? It's like the internet now. There was a time when people talked about the World Wide web, right? And now it's just like everybody is just, everybody knows about the internet. Yeah. Well, the same thing happened when there was no such thing as germ theory and then it's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So... By the time we get to the mid to the late 19th century, there is no ignoring it. Germs and their discovery become equal with what is called scientific medicine or modern medicine, right? This is when, this is the beginning of scientific medicine as we know it today. Germs, this idea of like effluvia and, and miasma become germs, which become bacteria, which become microorganisms, which then become associated with pathogens, right? Disease causing agents, which then result in this medical idea that we now know of pathology. Pathology becomes ever-changed because we then have etiology. In other words, we are now isolating the cause or the perceived cause of a disease process. So there comes a time when if you can't capture it under a microscope and identify it and link it to a disease, it doesn't exist. And if you try to do medicine without that, you're a quack, okay? So the bacterial theories of disease spread like a plague despite inconsistencies in data and difficulty actually connecting these germs or bacteria to disease results. And another spoiler alert, you know that germ theory now, the, the scientific field is going like, yeah, not so sure that it's a thing, okay? But the homeopaths all of a sudden are hot for it. <sighs> Silly homeopaths, talk about that in a minute. So. All of these germ theories, there were plenty of them that existed before this time, right? So the isolation of the scabies bug actually happened by an Italian guy in the late 17th century. And there were the theories of miasma, but it was the actual capacity to consistently identify these little creatures, right? That really pushed it forward. And then what happened, and this is why I talk about it as a zeitgeist, is that all these public health measures started to change. So hygienic processes, sanitation, sanitation in the operating room. This is the whole thing about sepsis, right? And antiseptic and listerism, right? This is all about killing germs. And this public health fixation on seeing, killing, culturing germs, which then leads to all these disinfecting things, yeah? Okay, so once you get to that place, it's pretty hard to put that biomedical toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. And of course, here comes our old friend, Constantine Herring. He was known as a microscopic master of his day, and he had the most expensive microscope available in his time. It was 750 bucks. And because he was running a college, he brought all that technology into the college. So for the people who say, oh, homeopathy, Flexner, because homeopaths didn't have any, they didn't need any of the equipment and they didn't have all the stuff. BS, that's not what happened at all. In fact, this is from a course catalog for the Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1868. More numerous vivisections than have ever been given in any medical institution in this city, teaching on the European plan with microscopes of high power, okay? 
So homeopaths were doing this. This was not something that was only being done in the medical profession. Hahnemann gets wind of this and he says, oh, my dear Constantine, <laughs> sends him a little letter. And he says the Latin sit modus in rebus, which is basically like everything in everything in moderation. He says, I would advise you not to undertake any dissections on the bodies of allopathic patients in order to obtain pathological preparations. These would only show the results of incorrect medical treatment. Blah, 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 blah. He says, students' time should not be too much wasted by the study of anatomical details and the study of botany and chemistry ought not be carried too far. Okay. So Hahnemann is pushing back again on Herring, but honestly, Hahnemann could not have predicted the velocity of changes to come after his death. Remember, he dies in 1843 and it, it like goes exponentially after that. Yeah. And, and in all fairness to the, to the homeopaths and the medical doctors of that time, it would be impossible for doctors of any affiliation to avoid the germ craze. Right. And remember too, Hahnemann is not giving Herring a cease and desist on nozodes or technology, but he's encouraging fidelity to his system, which got to say again, it's based on unchanging universal law. So here we see a trend in medicine, some of which persists to today, but now we're seeing pushback on. And Hahnemann's like, you don't need all that. He says, don't waste too much of their time on that, right? Sit modus in rebus, everything in moderation. Herring's like, oh, yeah, 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 Sam. Yeah. So Herring claims to be one of the greatest followers of Hahnemann, but in the intro to the third American edition to the Organon, remember people always read your intros and prefaces and so forth. He says this, he says, yeah, you know what? I declare I'm one of the most enthusiastic in doing homage to Hahnemann's greatness, but nevertheless, I declare also, since my first acquaintance with homeopathy in 1821 to the present day, I have never yet accepted a single theory in the Organon as it is there promulgated. Okay, he's declaring himself an empiricist. In other words, I'm going to try it out for myself. But he's already, we've seen by examples, missed some of the biggest swaths of information in the universal law, and he's down in this reductionistic rabbit hole. What do you do? Well, you have some gratitude that his best buddy was this guy, Adolphus Lippi. Thank God for Lippi. So Lippi was a friend and colleague of Herring. I would say that they were besties at a certain point. Lippi got to America in 1837. He graduated from Allentown Academy, which was the, the first homeopathy school. Um, and they the first homeopathy school, they taught only medical doctors. It was a post-grad program. So you were already a doctor. You studied homeopathy. It was only taught in German. And Herring was one of the founders of that school. And Lippi is known to this day as being a master in Materia Medica. But the thing that's really important to know about him is that he never wavered philosophically. Yeah. Lippi was the founder of many journals, the Organon, the Hanumanian Monthly, Homeopathic Physician. He was prolific in his writings. And so many of them were attempts to salvage the core principles of homeopathy as the lure of bioreductionism was taking over. So Herring and Lippi, they joined the faculty of the Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1864. And Lippi, and to his credit, he recognized, he says, within homeopathy, science was not subject to fashion or change, or at least that's what he said in the 16th annual announcement of the Homeopathic Medical College. Um, and we'll talk about that in a slide or two. 
All right, so here we come to 1863 and 1864. So here is the Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania, and they are touting their science. So their big selling feature is that they are scientific. And I'm just gonna pull a quote here. It's what's, it's this part that's highlighted here. And you can see these books, um, if you're a primary source geek, oh my gosh, these, you can, you can still like feel the energy in them, but you see some of the, some of the pages are just so damaged. And I was like, you know, take turning these little pages as they're crinkling. Anyway, he says, um, it says in this, um, uh, in the catalog, quote, we have reason therefore to congratulate the profession that homeopathy has after years of successful trial and clinical tests been acknowledged at least by men of true medical education and candid scientific acumen to be not a mere utopia subject to fashion and change, but a science, a science so far advanced that our surrounding sister institutions can teach but the prolegemina of our own true doctrines. Okay, so that's all well and good, but if you, if you can look closely at the textbooks, it says also Hahnemann's organon. There's no chronic diseases, there's no materia medica pura, right? So, I mean, now we move forward. Herring and Lippy joined the faculty the following year. And at that point, they created a chair of special pathology and diagnostics. And we see here that, the, that this sort of science is starting to make its way into homeopathy education. The other courses were surgery, anatomy, and so forth. And then you get to 1865 and 66, Lippy and Herring are still friends because Lippy gives in his commencement speech, he says, the faculty are unanimous. You're not going to find this in any other medical school because this was a problem at that time. They were teaching all sorts of eclectic forms of medicine. He says, no, we are united. The faculty are united in the conviction that the success of homeopathy is entirely dependent on the inculcation and adoption of the principles taught and promulgated by its founder, Hahnemann. Okay, and so everything that was taught in homeopathy schools was the same stuff that was taught in a medical school and the theory and practice and fundamental principles of homeopathy with it. So when people say that they weren't teaching medicine in homeopathy schools, that is, it's just not true, okay? Now though, this becomes a problem because by 1866, 1867 academic year, all this new pathology starts coming into the course material. You've got special pathology and diagnostics. You've got anatomy, descriptive, surgical, pathological, physiology, general pathology. Lippy wants none of this, okay? So now Herring and Lippy start fighting because Lippy's like, no, homeopathy, it's a thing. And Herring's like, science, science, reductionism. So now they're having this huge fight. And I can't tell you how long it took me to read these letters of Herring's because they're written on this thin onion skin paper, sometimes on both sides. And when Herring gets mad, he like presses his pen in. I had to like blow it up. I took photos of my iPad and blew it up. And then it took weeks to translate these. Anyway, it, this pathology stuff was a bridge too far and the fighting begins. And this battle between Herring and Lippy, it had been known before, um, but what I what I wanted to understand and what I was researching was, well, what did they mean by science? Because science is a word that has a fungible meaning depending on who you are, where you are, and what you believe, right? And so I really started to see that Herring believed that 
you had that homeopathy had to evolve in lockstep with this reductionistic paradigm of medicine. And Lippy was fighting him at every turn to say, no, that moves us far away from, you know, what Hahnemann's principles were. The fight got so bad that Lippy writes him a letter back and he's, he's calling them the Chestnut Street rebels and he's going to report them to the attorney general. So Herring's like, fine, I'm leaving. I'm starting my own school. And that's the Hahnemann Medical College. That was Herring School. So at one point, there were two schools. And it was really interesting because there were also two hospitals. And the hospital that lasted, that actually Hahnemann Hospital here in Philadelphia, taught courses in homeopathy until the 1960s. And the Hahnemann sign was actually, this huge sign was there until last summer. I want to find it. I want to put it in my yard. Anyway, but this, um, but Herring's, Alistair's in the other room laughing. He'd like oh, to have I, You can only do that if you're in the box. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what he just said. Anyway, but um, there were two hospitals and the hospital that Lippy, that the followers of Lippy had, it was really interesting to learn about because the nurses, they were focused on the food that people ate. It was like, it was like the hospital that you would want today where there were homeopaths and there were nurses and there were people who were caring about health and they were only using the medical interventions when they were absolutely necessary. The reason they weren't successful is because everybody needed to be skilled in all of the medical procedures of the day. And so Herring's Hospital, that was basically just using homeopathy adjacent to the medical profession, is the one that succeeded. Yeah. Um, Lippy, he says, you know, look, if we attempt to restore health to the sick, we're bound to individualize. If we attempt to cure diseases, we must generalize. This very first step emancipates us from slavery to pathology, serving as a basis for our therapeutics. In other words, if all you're looking at is a disease and you're trying to treat it just based on the disease, you are never going to be successful. That is not homeopathy. We love Lippy. Now, Lippy, if you want to learn more about this, he has written a series of what I would call polemics. They're called the fatal errors. And this was him attempting to anchor homeopathy within the philosophy. And he was fighting against this reductionistic science that was that it was we were drowning in it. Right. So in 1868 and 1869. Down here, I'm just going to help this person with a little mute. There we go. Um, pathology got folded into homeopathy practice. And so the brouhaha dies down. Lippy gains control. He doesn't eliminate pathology completely, but it becomes a part of the overall homeopathy course. So you've got homeopathic institutes, pathology, and practice of medicine. And, you know, it's, it's like we practice today, right? Students of homeopathy know that we can understand remedies better if we know the affinities that they have. We need to understand how the body works. So that we're not saying that you divorce yourself from all of the medical understanding. It's a difference between adherence to Hahnemann's philosophy or going at it from the other direction. Yeah, it's like inductive and deductive reasoning. So... We get back to the annual announcements. And again, as we talked about with changing our mind about how we blame everything on Flexner and the Rockefellers, you know, they remember that there were colleges 
there were hospitals, which means that you've got brick and mortar facilities, which means you got money invested. You've got boards of directors who need to run these businesses. And so they're advertising things like light and airy lecture rooms, space and opportunities to practice anatomy equal to any in the city, a dispensary attached to the hospital where you can find, quote, the most rare and interesting forms of disease, the pathology of which autopsy is often called upon to unveil where our surgical treatment shows its superiority and cutting edge equipment. Yeah. So when you, if you read the Flexner report, which I did, there are homeopathy colleges that were fine, that were included, that were not. It was the ones that didn't meet the standard. And some of them actually exceeded the other medical schools of their time. So now we're just going to finish up real quick with the age of biomedical reality, the bacterial revolution, the obsession with germs. Yeah. So just a little bit of fun as we ended up. But don't forget, because it's a benefit, that this is about home foundation and all the things that we can do together. So if you're not a part of the homeopathy community of home, please support us in some way, even if it's just to share social media or come to our events. We really appreciate it. All right. So when you, when you think about how homeopaths solve problems, we look at problems in a very holistic way. So before the germ age, a surgeon relied on his nose to predict an outcome. If, it, if a body after surgery smelled like the fetid odor of dung or rotten meat, you would know that decomposition was happening. This was how they recognized gangrene, right? This is putrefaction and everybody knew that that was gonna be a poor outcome. So if you're a Hanumanian thinker, right? This nose is evidentiary knowledge that evokes the concept of similars, right? That makes sense. You would go, oh, what would cure that? Well, if it smells like, you know, something that's rotting, well, then along comes this guy Patterson who made the remedy pyrogenium by taking a maceration of half a pound of lean beef, let it stand in the hot sun of July, strain it through linen and so on and so forth. And then they did provings of this disgusting putrid rotten meat juice. And what they found is that this medicine, it doesn't just cure gangrene or sepsis, right? Which is what it was associated with, but actually, a variety of febrile symptoms, eruptions, inflammations. Um, it was useful for septicemia, but also for typhoid fever, for syphilis, a retained fetus, bites of poisonous animals, all kinds of separating wounds, right? Okay, but let's just finish up by looking at our dear friend, Samuel Swan, who writes a letter to Constantine Herring. And he says, dear doctor, I read about your serinum and I wanted to know, did you ever potentize septic blood? And if so, would you be kind enough to send me a small quantity of the highest potency you have? I have a prover who wants to prove it. He just graduated as a surgeon and referring to the damage from dissecting wounds, I suggested that a high potency of septic blood would be an antidote to which he suggested a wish to prove it. Oh, very interesting, right? Remember what happened to Herring back in 1824? He got a dissecting wound, right? And that's what got him to homeopathy. It's kind of funny. Meantime, though, Swan's not saying, hey, what remedy might you use for the symptoms of X, Y, and Z? Nope, totally reductionistic, looking for an isopathic answer. He's saying, did you ever potentize the blood? And Herring says, dear doctor, 
I got your letter. No, I haven't potentized septic blood. Every case being different. <sighs> All of a sudden you're like, oh, Herring, you're okay. And then he goes, better to wait until the chemists have taken it into their hands. I got a guy. I got a guy. Wormley in Ohio. He's my guy. Do you know him? All cases following dissecting wounds get well from arsenic. Please, Constantine Herring, no, yours got better with arsenic. I'm sure there are other ways to approach this problem, right? So you see that these are some of the conversations that are happening. And look, we don't have time to go into detail here, but Herring is going all the way down to saying, I got some, we ought to prove some iron from human blood. I got some pus from the variola of sheep because there's more sulfocyanate in their saliva. Okay, you see how reductionistic he's going. This is not the, I smell something, what solves that problem, but I'm going to reduce it to its smallest possible um, element. Now, there are so many problems associated with this, yeah? Not the least of which is nobody even knows where these remedies are coming from, yeah? Because there's an argument that's in the Medical Society of New York's um, uh, journal saying this guy Heath of London used the decomposed beef to make his remedy. And then Clark says Swan used Heath's preparation, but Allen and Kent dispute this and they say, nope, Swan's potencies were made from pus from a septic abscess. Okay, now we have no idea. And then they say, well, actually they're probably about the same. So you can see that things have run amok. They have totally run amok. And there are some problems. And the problem is, unfortunately, this guy, Carol Dunham, we've been to his grave. He's buried in Brooklyn. Anyway, he tried. He's like, you know what? We just need everybody to be friends in homeopathy. And this is what happens far too much in homeopathy. They say, oh, no, just respect everybody's differences. Well, we already tried that. Okay. And so Dunham in 1870, he's the president of the AIH. And he goes, you know what? Let's just open up the AIH to the half homeopaths because then they'll, they'll learn from us. They'll be positively influenced. You know what happened? By 1874, they struck the word homeopathy from any of the AIH membership requirements. Okay. So all of these people who are you know, who are pathological prescribers, mixing all kinds of stuff, giving, you know, polypharmacy solutions, they are all being allowed into the AIH. They have this big um, centennial exposition, 700 homeopaths must have been a party. But you know what, when you read the transactions, which I have, it's a mess. It's a mess. They give this for that prescribing, they're giving 15 remedies, whatever. And you know what happens to Dunham? He died. He couldn't take it anymore. He's like, I tried my best, okay? So then what happens is, because now the schools are moving well away from Hanumanian homeopathy because they need to keep their business going and all the germ theory, and they've basically got medical schools that are doing a little bit of homeopathy on the side. So Lippy and a couple of his friends, they throw a Hail Mary pass and they start the IHA, the International Hanumanian Association. And basically their bylaws are like, listen people, homeopathy, it's a thing. We are the people that believe in it. We are the ones who do homeopathy. We do provings. We we This is what we need to do. But it was too late. It was too late. It was over. This is why when people say it was because of the, you know, the homeopathy schools didn't have the right equipment. Wrong. Is it because of Flexner Report? No, this was 1881. They were already on their Hail Mary. It was done in the 1870s. Okay. So 
What would Hahnemann do? That's the question we started with, right? Especially because we've got this problem. Biomedicine is baked into the homeopathic cake. You know, you can't unscramble the egg. You can't unbake the cake. So, I mean, Hahnemann was really clear. And he says, like, don't go by disease name. I think what Hahnemann do, would do is he would do the same thing that Libby is doing. Just do homeopathy. Don't get bogged down with isopathic interventions. Don't get yourself mixed up with all of this polypharmacy based on how do you treat one disease? That's not homeopathy, you know? And I think if you wanna really learn more about this and think more about it, one of the things that's helpful to me is to see Hahnemann as being uniquely situated at the end of Hippocratic medicine. So he had all that knowledge of the balance of the elements and everything. And then the very beginning of germ theory. I mean, Hahnemann's theory of chronic diseases is miraculous. He understood germ theory and miasma, but he understood it through the lens of universal laws. Okay, so we have the capacity to incorporate both of these. Yeah, so lessons that we've learned from history. This is my mean Hahnemann picture. I always put that up when Hahnemann's giving us the you know what, right? So Stern Hahnemann says, just because it's potentized doesn't make it homeopathy. It's only homeopathy when the remedies are used according to principles, otherwise they're potentized substances. And look, when when people worry about the FDA and all the other things getting us into trouble, I what I think about is if we practice homeopathy according to principles, that's homeopathy. I would like us to be very clear, like they tried to do in 1881, that all of these off script uses of remedies are just called that. I'm not saying nobody should use them, but don't call it homeopathy. That way, if we get called on the carpet, something happens that shouldn't then we're not the ones who are going to be, you know, on the, we're not going to be on the hook for it. We need to go back to these, you know, whereas we believe this clearly teaches the similars, the totality and all of that, because we know we have 230 years of clinical experience that we can do that safely and that the outcomes are amazing. Yeah. We know that we've got to stay clear with how, um, remedies are made. This business that happened with the rotten meat and the pus, who knows where these medicines are coming from? So if there are people who are, you know, hawking these nosodes and giving them in ways that Hahnemann never imagined that they would be given, we just don't have the clinical evidence to support that. So we should leave behind the speculative systems and focus on aphorism 20 and the importance of provings, right? Because homeopathy is a thing. It's an incredible system and it works. So we're going to use the medical knowledge to our advantage, but we're going to we are going to prescribe according to principles. And why does it matter? Because <laughs> this is our time, because there are so many people who are sick. There are so many people who are desperately seeking help from homeopathy. And we can really help them. And those of us who have been around the block for a while are starting to see some of the downsides of people who are using homeopathic medicine like it's candy and people who are not qualified to practice homeopathy who are hanging out a shingle and charging thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in ways that aren't necessarily working in people's benefit. Yeah, this is our time. And look, Hahnemann, 
he might have discovered the elixir of life. I'm saying might. I'm I am absolutely positive of it. And he's given us the instructions of what to do with it. So why not? Right? Why would we want to do something else when we've already got the best? Yeah. I can't go without mentioning AHE just because, you know, that's the school that I represent. So separate from Home Foundation um, is a place that is doing its best to provide the best education in homeopathy that is possible. And we have a new cohort that's starting at the end of January. Um, and we are working on ways to deliver education to people as easily as possible. And so for the first time ever, um, our program, so we run a very intensive clinical, you know, or uh, professional training program. Um, but we're now allowing people who are just interested in being introduced to homeopathy to take just the first couple of days of the course, see what it's like, hear what you learn in the beginning of homeopathy school. We're also um, inviting people who only want to study acute prescribing, just join the program, and then you can exit when you're finished with that, and you will be a safe prescriber who's been given all of the guardrails for you know, for safe and effective practice. And then of course, we encourage you to stay on and, and study to become a professional practitioner. Um, and because the mission of home is to be inclusive and to not judge, um, we still go to visit Herring. And I still have to say that even though he's a complicated character to me, um, you know, what we stand for is inclusivity and just embracing homeopathy, its history, and knowing that each of us brings something, something to the table. So even though Herring, he might've gotten a little bit off track, um, he's still our buddy. Thank you very much. I know it was almost 90 minutes, but that's faster than I thought I could get it done. Um, and I hope you learned something. Yeah. Um, we have time for a couple of questions. Anybody? Tanya. Hello, you. I didn't know you were here. <laughs> I love listening to you teach. It's really wonderful. Every time I show up a lot. I just wanted to um, tell everybody that um, I had a exciting conversation a couple of weeks ago. Martin Sheen has had a family homeopath for 30 years and he's uh, a peripheral friend of my family's. And I had a 20 minute or so conversation with him telling him about Home Partners Foundation. And he gave permission for us to name drop and um, use him as uh, an example of someone who has loved homeopathy, used homeopathy, raised his children with homeopathy, and continues to have a homeopath as his primary care provider, his only care provider, um, even today. Um, thank you for that. And for those of you who might not know Tanya, which is kind of impossible, but Tanya, in addition to being an amazing homeopath and a part of um, Home Foundation's um, supervision team. She um, is just an integral part of our helpline, but she's also the president of NASH and has a homeopathy school. Tennessee, Tennessee homeopathy, what's it called? Nashville School of Homeopathy, yeah. Nashville School of Homeopathy, yes. So um, thank you, Tanya. And she's our really good friend. Anybody else have any questions or any thoughts? Is there anything about, I mean, I think, 
you know, for those of you who might have learned a little bit about the history of homeopathy and kind of the shorthand way that it comes across, um, I think there are just some some surprises in, you know, in what it really looked like. I have to say that I was I was genuinely shocked by some of the things that I learned in doing um, in doing this research. And of course, you know, um, it, it would take me two days to really go through and, you know, take you through all of that. Um, the book that I wrote that is based on my thesis, um, I think you can get it through um, our website, I think, or Kaylee or Sherry will tell you how. Yeah. And it's it's basically um, outlining most of what we talked about. And anyone who buys it, the proceeds 100% go to Home Foundation. So it's a way to make a $20 contribution to Home Foundation and get a book. But you have to let me know what you think. Dasha. Denise, I'm not seeing the Comfort Care course on Homeopathy Help Network. Is it listed or is it still a secret? Yeah, um, it's not listed yet. It will be soon. We've pushed back a couple of times just because it's like opening Pandora's box with all of the legalities and all of the forms and things that we're working on. So we did decide on dates for the course actually in our team meeting today. Um, and so that should be going up pretty soon. Yeah. And the comfort care course, it's um, the way that this is going to work is that anyone can take the course. It's going to be three 90 minute sessions, I believe, um, three weeks in a row. And, um, and it's basically an overview of palliative and end of life care, and just also sort of how we comport ourselves as practitioners in that space, because there's, there's just a lot of preparation for that. And, um, and we've, we've sort of broken it up into three stages of care. So the final two stages, if we go from the very end of life, um, that's one, that's one sort of tier of care. The other is um, true end of life care. So someone who is um, engaged in hospice or some hospice like, you know, care where it, it's just really palliative and supportive. And then also um, we have another tier, which is for people who have been given a life-limiting diagnosis. And what we're doing for that is um, we've got uh, Molly Punzo, who's our medical director for the program. Um, we're working with her to develop um, a process where we can vet homeopaths who to make sure that they have the experience and the knowledge to be able to take on these complicated cases. You know, it's really hard to know when you are looking for a homeopath if you've got someone who has, you know, the experience and the chops and the knowledge to handle these, you know, really complex cases. And so we're developing this vetting process. Um, so there'll be an application process and an interview process to make sure that anyone who's engaging in that level of care has been properly, you know, vetted and identified as being you know, a, a safe provider. Um, and we're also working on developing ways where there can be teams. You know, um, there are just so many amazing homeopaths that are not medically licensed, but, you know, a good homeopath always knows when they reach their edge or their limit of their knowledge. And so creating networks where non-licensed folks can, you know, can speak to someone who's medically licensed, but it's also a homeopath. So they really understand you know, what the problem that we're dealing with and can help us with some of those more complex um, issues. Yeah. And Denise, I have a question actually that, um, so I listened to your podcast, by the way, I love the Stranger and Popular podcast. Um, and, um, and by the way, I'm super excited about the post-grad courses, especially the, um, 
the course related to long-term case, uh, case management. So looking forward to, and think it's brilliant how you guys have sort of pulled apart the program and, and are offering those, those postgraduate courses. Um, I'm almost a little shy about asking this question because it seems so basic, but you often use the term that you often use the phrase that homeopathy is based on universal laws. Right. And that's such a, to me, it's a big statement, like a universal law. And so like clearly the law of similars, but you know, um, what, like, what are the universal laws? Yeah. So um, actually Hahnemann describes it so beautifully. So if you go like aphorisms say, start at 20 to 49 ish, it's really from about 26 to 50, but he talks about how how everything works. And he'll talk about how in the idea of similars, right? It's not just similars, but the stronger similar that cures. And he talks about how cure can happen when one disease is stronger than another disease, right? So smallpox can be curative of, of measles. Measles can cure conjunctivitis, yeah, because there are similar symptoms. And, and then he wor he also works through examples like how it works in the universe. So um, he gives examples about how the luminous um, moon of Jupiter becomes invisible to the naked eye when the sun, when the light of the sun overtakes it. So all through that section, he gives these examples. Now, the, the other, the other part of that is, is really, um, so Hahnemann, he was, he was just such an amazing, um, I was going to say thinker. I don't know. What would we call you? I just have to turn around and ask him. But what I, I think what really changed the game for me was when I started to work on figuring out who Hahnemann was and where his influences came from and tracked his evolution over time. And I think although he gives all the information in the organon about universal laws and how it works and how it's unchanging. It's, 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 it's almost so elegantly simplistic that you go, well, that's all it is. Like those are universal laws. Right. But, but once I started to see also where he was coming from, and this is the part of, this is the medical alchemy part about how, um, sort of how evolutionary process works, how simple organisms become larger organisms, how sort of the transmutational process of one thing becoming something else works, how sort of evolution, when you work, when you have a homeopathic remedy, it speeds up healing, which is basically speeding up that evolutionary process, right? So it's, although Hahnemann gives all those examples in the organon, it's really steeped in this larger context of his, you know, of, of his discoveries. I'd have to do that talk again. That's been a little while. Yeah, that, that's helpful. And, and I'll go check that out. And I think what you said is probably part of it too, is it does seem like almost like simple, like, oh, okay. That, so that's a universal law, you know, like right. it's almost like too obvious in a way. So thank you. I appreciate it. It totally is. And it's really funny how, how sort of science, it, it sometimes will buck against the things that we sort of know to be true. You know, it's like, sometimes you hear the, you hear these examples and you're like, but that actually didn't happen. Or, you know, like how, oh, I, sorry, I have to think of a non-controversial answer. You'll have to give me a minute because of course all the ones that came up are the ones I shouldn't say, but another one will come. All right, people, that um, was uh, was really a pleasure for me to get to um, share with all of you. I could talk about this all day.
I kind of do. Um, but it's really nice to get to do it in a different format. So thank you for taking the time to be here. I really, really appreciate it. Yes. And thanks for your interest in Home Foundation. Um, go to our website, hohmfoundation.org, and see what's going on. All right? Thank you. See y'all later. <laughs>